This is the Sustainable AI Podcast, a podcast that brings together researchers and industry professionals using machine learning to tackle the United Nations' 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Welcome to the Sustainable AI Podcast. I'm your host, Lily Adelstein. Thank you for joining us today. The following is a conversation with Michael Kiembe and Alex Noir from GiveDirectly, which is a nonprofit that helps individuals in extreme poverty by providing unconditional cash transfers via mobile phone. In this episode, we discuss extreme poverty, Give Directly's approach to alleviating extreme poverty, and how the organization has started using machine learning to effectively target individuals most in need. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, hello, Alex and Michael. Um, if you both could start things off by um, telling us a little bit about yourself and your current role, where you work, what you do, that would be great. Sure. Hi, uh, my name is Michael Kayemba. I'm the Innovation Director at Give Directly, and previously have been um, the Uganda Country Director. I'm based in uh, Kampala. And I'm Alex Dwar. I'm Give Directly's Regional Director. Uh, overseeing our U.S. and humanitarian programs based in New York City. Wonderful. And so what brought you guys to this work? Um, Michael, if you want to kind of start, what got you started with Give Directly? Yeah, good, good question. Um, for me, I think the biggest motivation for working at Give Directly was um, the way Give Directly approaches nonprofit work which is very much uh, empowering poor people to get themselves out of poverty themselves, as opposed to trying to decide the best way to get themselves out of poverty, right? So for me, I think that um, that goal and that vision spoke to me very strongly. And it's also part of the reason why I'm still uh, at Give Directly nearly four years later. Um, Wonderful. And what about you, Alex? So my background first was in development economics. Uh, so I was working with researchers to evaluate different social programs, um, both in the US and also in low-income countries, and was really impressed by the research pointing to the effectiveness uh, and cost-effectiveness of cash as an intervention to help people um, get out of poverty or to weather crises. Um, so I did that, that for a few years, and then I worked at a startup accelerator called Y Combinator, um, where I helped them launch their own uh, studies and in guaranteed income uh, in cash-based programming. So it's kind of a combination of, of the economic approach and the startup approach that attracted me to give directly. Great. And so I guess the big question that uh, is probably on people's mind is, what is give directly? What is the model? How are you guys trying to help people? So Give Directly is a nonprofit. I think I will share a little bit and then Alex, please feel free, free to jump in. Give Directly is a nonprofit, right? But I think the, the core of what we do in terms of how um, we deliver value to, to recipients is through cash transfers, primarily for two, for two goals. One is poverty alleviation and the other is um, um, humanitarian relief, um, which Alex will share a little bit more about. But 
how we typically do that is we go to a country and within that country uh, on the poverty alleviation side identify some of the poorest areas of that country work with local authorities in that country to explain the program and get all the necessary approvals to operate within that country uh, but but the core of the work that we do is really with the communities in need right they're the ones we explain to why give why we approach poverty alleviation the way we do and then to the individual families and households uh, that are in need um, how they can utilize this usually one-time cash transfer to get themselves out of poverty and we do not uh, prescribe the exact sort of where they should spend the money uh, we believe that their needs are different and they will find the best way to appropriate that money to um, the issue of most need um, so yeah happy to after Alex has shared on the humanitarian side to answer more questions specifically on that, but that is the general approach to poverty alleviation work. Yeah, I think the only thing I'll add on the humanitarian side is that the difference between humanitarian programming and development programming is that humanitarian programming is meant to be short-term to help someone who is in a crisis, whether it's a natural disaster or conflict or migration, uh, get through that crisis. Um, so often that means the transfers are smaller. So it's just enough for whatever your needs are uh, at that time, not necessarily designed for you to make large investments in assets um, or something else that might have a kind of longer term effect. Um, so Give Directly only recently started doing humanitarian work um, about a, uh, in 2017, so a few years ago. And part of the reason for that is because an increasing portion of people who are living in extreme poverty are actually people who are also experiencing humanitarian crises. So we realize that if our goal is to be maximizing the dollars delivered to the poor, we need to be really operating in both spheres, the kind of uh, more stable development context, as well as the crisis context. Got it, that makes sense. And how do you describe and define extreme poverty? And I'm, particularly interested in asking you both because it sounds like you don't just think of individuals who are experiencing extreme poverty for an extended period of time, but also those who are highly susceptible to extreme poverty and those who are pushed perhaps somewhat suddenly into extreme poverty due to humanitarian crises. So how do you define and describe extreme poverty? I think some of the measures of of extreme poverty, or at least as we approach it, is using sort of the standard measurements of, um, of poverty, right? So right now that, that, that was some index of un living on, on under a dollar a day, right? So we look out for the, the approaches, um, we look out for countries that have the largest proportion of people uh, living under a dollar a day, and that is how we choose which countries to focus on, right? And then on the, on the humanitarian context, then people that might not have been living in, uh, in poverty, but experience a humanitarian crisis uh, can quickly slide into poverty, right? As a result, 
Um, so, so that is the general approach. Uh, but also, Alex can share a little bit more about how we sort of view that in terms of the sort of anticipated, um, especially environmental crises that are likely to increase as a result of climate change, right? And how we approach sort of choosing communities and countries in which to operate there. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of different ways to look at it. So I think, you know, one is to estimate the average daily consumption of either an individual or a community and maybe you set, that, set a threshold and say for, you know, communities where the average consumption is less than $1.90 per day, that means they're in extreme poverty, they should be eligible for a program. In a humanitarian crisis, you, you might take that approach, but you might also look at um, vulnerabilities. So, um, you know, do you have a number of dependent family members or people living with disabilities in your household? Um, things like that that might make you additionally exposed to uh, risk in a humanitarian setting. Um, you might also look at kind of expected costs due to a crisis. So for, as Michael was saying, perhaps there's recurring flooding in a certain region every year and $30 per month for the three months preceding that flood could allow you to make some investments that would mitigate the cost of those floods. For example, you might buy sandbags to shore up your house or fuel so that you can take a motorcycle to higher land when the floods hit. Um, that model of actually giving cash to people before the crisis is called anticipatory action um, and is meant to decrease the overall cost of a response by uh, kind of investing on the front end and also um, mitigate some of the negative experiences someone might have, you know, you're, you're preempting the, the, the crisis a little bit. Um, so that, that's kind of the new, a newer approach in humanitarian response that is more cost-effective and a better experience for recipients is something we're investing in. But in that case, you might look at what are the expected costs uh, associated with mitigating some of the risks of this crisis, and then you would set a transfer size there. That's very interesting. I, I, I hadn't heard about anticipatory, did you call it anticipatory action? That's right. Is that something that Give Directly is working on now? It is, yes. It, it, we're certainly not the only ones. I think there's a number of people in the sector working on it, and it has a few names. Also, um, forecast-based response or trigger-based response. Um, so in different scenarios, you would define it differently, but it could be, for example, you look at rainfall, uh, and see once rainfall gets to a certain level, we would expect this flood to happen. So if rainfall gets to this level, then that will trigger a program. Um, you could also look at something more human made, for example, evacuation orders um, or uh, lockdowns during a pandemic and say that you know this is a, a trigger for a program. And once that trigger happens, our program will, will, will launch. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to dive into COVID in just a minute because I, it's definitely some interesting work that you all have been doing in response to that. Um, but before we get there, I just want to delve a little bit more into to help people who are listening paint a bit of a picture. Um, I know that you guys, at least it looked like you were focused mainly in areas in Kenya, Uganda, and Rwanda. 
I was wondering if you can articulate a little bit, what does it look like for people to live on less than $1.90 a day um, in those countries? Living on less than a dollar a day, I think one of the manifestations of that is, um, is, is in sort of the things that manifests in sort of everyday, um, everyday needs that people are either able to um, get themselves to, to afford to get for themselves, or in this case, are not able to uh, afford to get to themselves. So if we take, for example, the, the, the example of, um, of nutrition, right? People living on less than a dollar a day usually have less meals than people that uh, live on more than that. But even when they have more meals, the quality of the meals that they have is usually less nutritious and probably more monotonous than people that have more uh, money than that. I think that's, that, that's one. When you think about their um, ability to access healthcare and the quality of the healthcare that they are able to, to access, part of it could be a, 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 just a function of, of the healthcare services available, right? But even if there are private providers for healthcare services, those people are usually not able to um, access uh, a good quality of healthcare because of, 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 um, of purchasing power. Um, and, and on and on into um, quality education for their children. I think that is also, those I would say are the examples that I can think about in which living on less than a dollar a day manifests uh, itself in these, in these communities. So quality of shelter that they are, that they are able to afford or live uh, or live in. Yeah, hopefully that, that helps paint a bit of a picture. Alex, anything to add? Yeah, I think, I think what you see is people have to make decisions in the mindset of scarcity, where they're making these constant trade-offs of, you know, do I buy medicine or do I make sure that my child's school fees are paid? Or, you know, do I feed myself so that I have enough of energy to work through the day? Or do I feed my children so that they um, are able to, you know, grow and prosper? And I think it's, it's these kind of, um, you know, heartbreaking trade-offs that living in extreme poverty uh, causes and kind of what we're hoping or what we, what we see um, is mitigated by just relieving that financial constraint. Thank you. And so understanding that obviously extreme poverty didn't start in 2020, um, but I know that 2020 and COVID-19 really inflicted a burden on a lot of communities um, that governments were trying to um, help remedy and mitigate. Um, so I was wondering if you all could talk about um, how you all got involved in the COVID response in Togo. Sure, so um, when the pandemic started, we, you know, first, the first thing we did was pause our operations to make sure our staff was safe. So, you know, we pulled people out of the field, uh, started letting them uh, either work from home or pause operations completely. Um, and then once we made sure our staff were safe, we started thinking about, well, what can we do? Is there a way that cash can help 
um, mitigate some of the financial and economic consequences of this crisis. The first program we launched was actually in the US. Um, the pandemic, of course, hit the US early um, relative to Africa. Um, but once that was up and running and the pandemic started really becoming a global phenomenon, we started looking at what, where can we have the highest impact in countries that are uh, low income. In the case of Togo, we were actually invited by the government of Togo um, to be part of a group of partners that included the government itself, uh, a research team at the University of California, Berkeley, um, and some other external researchers at Innovations for Poverty Action and SIGA, uh, the Center for Effective Global Action. Um, and as a group, we worked together to help expand the government of Togo's pandemic response to rural areas. So they had already launched a really effective program in uh, urban areas, which were the first places in Togo to experience lockdowns. Um, and that program involved sending cash to people digitally. They built it very quickly. Um, I think actually just 10 days, uh, something like that from, from when the first lockdown happened. Um, but once they wanted to expand it to the rural areas, there was this question of how do we figure out who in the rural areas to pay? Uh, most people in rural areas are poor, but of course, some are more poor than others. And we don't have good data on, on, the, on who is uh, in which group. Um, and that's where the idea came to use machine learning. Um, so Josh Blumenstock at the University of California, Berkeley had been working on this for a few years, and we had run a pilot in Uganda uh, at a smaller scale. But essentially the approach that we decided to take in partnership with the government of Togo involved using machine learning at two different stages. The first was to do geographic targeting. So actually using satellite imagery, processing that and to figure out which geographies are the most poor. And then the second was to do individual targeting. So to use cell phone data, uh, feeding that into a machine learning algorithm, predicting the individual consumption of a mobile phone subscriber, and then using that to determine eligibility. So it was layering on this machine learning based targeting to the government's robust uh, digital cash infrastructure that this partnership between the different players enabled. Got it. And so when I think about machine learning systems, I, I often break it into three parts. You have sort of the data collection preparation is kind of the modeling step. And then the third is sort of implementation. Um, and so Talking about sort of the collection and preparation part, like what were some challenges or insights you can share with us about the collection, uh, data collection and preparation part of the process? So by data collection, you mean like collecting training data for? Yeah. Okay, so there, there was a couple parts here. You know, first we had to collect uh, training data. We were lucky to work with Innovations for Poverty Action that has a lot of experience doing surveys, um, throughout Africa, but including in Togo. Um, and they had moved their data collection from in-person surveys to phone-based surveys. That was a little bit of a challenge, um, I think, you know, to swift, switch the technology to being remote, but ultimately they were able to do that. And those surveys included um, kind of a proxy means test, which is the standard way to measure uh, poverty. So it's asking about different assets you have, um, and using that as a proxy for uh, what your consumption level is. 
that data was considered the ground truth data. Um, and then uh, the data that we used for targeting was the cell phone data, um, which we got from the major telcos. So there are two major telcos in Togo. Because of the nature of the crisis, they were interested in partnering with the government and with us to do a response. Um, and so there are some complex data sharing negotiations uh, to ensure that we're protecting the privacy of mobile phone subscribers. But ultimately, everybody was on board to move quickly, and we were able to use um, the survey data to train against the cell phone data, and then use the cell phone data to predict the consumption level of a mobile phone subscriber. Great. And we spoke not that long ago with um, a researcher from UC Berkeley who sounds like worked closely with you all. Um, and she sort of walked us through the modeling and implementation um, aspects of the machine learning involved. But I was wondering if you all could talk to us a little bit about um, the impact of this project. Sure. So um, the government's program reached almost a million people and about 140,000 of those people were from the, our program, our program in partnership with the government. Um, so those people received uh, payments for five months that were equal to about half of their average monthly consumption, um, which is roughly equal to the expected loss of income due to the pandemic. Great. It's incredible the impact that the project had. One question I have about giving cash directly is the sustainability of it. The podcast is called Sustainable AI. I'm very interested um, in this question of sustainable capacity building type collaboration with communities. And so I know that Alex mentioned earlier that cash transfers are, are used in times of humanitarian assistance when the need is acute. Um, but how does it play into the conversation about sustainable um, development? That's a, that's a good question. Um, um, so I think maybe putting a bit of context in terms of our development work, um, again, part of the reason, part of Give Directly's approach to poverty alleviation is empowering people by giving them large one-off cash transfers of about $1,000 to invest in uh, their long-term needs, right? But people's needs might be different at different points in time. So I'll give you an example. One household's primary need might be educating their children and $1,000 will take um, a child through university, a couple of years of university, right? So in our view, that investment in education will have long-term down, uh, down the stream benefits, right? So we believe that is sustainability. Then there will be a family that will decide that for them, the, they would like to invest this in a business, right? In a small business that could be, um, that, that could be context specific um, in terms of the businesses they see around that are flourishing. And we believe that that is sustainable long-term because they will get money uh, that helps them um, um, sustain themselves. And then there could be another bucket for whom um, $1,000 helps them send a family member to hospital and get better services. 
we believe that is sustainable because then that family member will be better able to provide for the family, right? So I think sometimes when sustainability is used in these development contexts, most people only think about the second example I gave of, okay, can you show us the returns on this business that this person invested in? But I think we take a bit of a more holistic approach that by being unhealthy and having um, sort of reduces uh, the productivity of a family long-term by not getting good education for children. It means long-term, those are going to perpetuate the cycle of poverty. So I think we, we, we believe this approach really empowers the families to be able to invest in um, the long-term solutions that they feel are most urgent to them at that particular time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. That makes sense. It's incredibly interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way before because I think it makes sense. Like other models that I've seen can sometimes require people to be part of trainings, um, you know, over the span of months in order to sort of get the the support or aid that they need with the program. And um, yeah, it, it can it can force people to bide along in a program when this this sort of initiative sounds like it gives people a lot more autonomy to invest in what they feel like would be most beneficial for them. One other question that hopefully we'll, we'll get through relatively quickly. Um, as an organization, what was it like to consider using machine learning as part of your project? Um, and do you think that you'll end up using it um, going forward? Or do you feel like this was kind of like useful in this scenario, but likely not useful in other scenarios? So Give Directly has been giving cash transfers to people for um, over a decade now, a little over a decade now, right? And I would say while previously the question of cash itself was a, a fundamental question to answer, is cash effective? Is cash the best way in various contexts? I think that question has largely been answered in a number of contexts, right? There are areas where it's still not yet answered. But in programming for, for, for cash, one of the difficult pieces is the targeting of the people, right? Who do you target and why? And how quickly can you do that um, uh, to be able to provide this support to people? So previously, our approaches have been um, either we decide using um, sort of macro data that this part of the country is very poor. And then we decide to give support to that entire part of the country. That's what we call saturation in our uh, language. Or we could decide that poverty in this particular urban part of the country manifests itself a bit differently and that there needs to be a way of choosing the poorest within that sort of otherwise mixed income area. And in that case, we use the proxy means test, right? But one of the questions that we were thinking about in getting into the machine learning and AI targeting is, we need to be able to target people a lot faster, but maintaining accuracy, right? 
or we need to be able to deploy money a lot quicker, especially in the context of the pandemic, right? So those were some of the questions that we were thinking about in getting into the AI and machine learning pieces, solving the targeting question. And yes, we do anticipate continuing to utilize this approach um, in, all, in our programming moving, moving forward. Yeah, I, I would just add that I think, you know, we approached it with a lot of caution because I think we are familiar with concerns around algorithmic bias and the ways that um, machine learning can, can hide or obfuscate biases um, and, and, and make that actually an even deeper or more entrenched problem. I think to mitigate that risk, there is two approaches we took. One is that we did put together uh, an ethics panel of people that are experts in AI, um, as well as people that represented the communities that we wanted to work in to make sure we were understanding the kind of pros and cons and risks of this approach. The second is that we really want to make sure we're actually evaluating this approach. Um, so is it actually a better uh, option than other alternatives um, that were at our disposal at the time? And we worked with independent evaluators to do that. Uh, and I think, I think some of us were, were actually surprised by the findings um, that the machine learning based approach was actually more inclusive and more accurate than some of the available alternatives. That doesn't mean that there aren't holes, um, that there are people that are left out or that there aren't people that uh, um, we need to make special efforts to include in future programs. But it does mean that it was one of the best options available at the time. And we can use this as the starting point to uh, build on for future programs, you know, to accelerate how quickly we do targeting, how inclusive that targeting is, um, and to be kind of one piece of a broader approach to making sure that people are included in, in these types of response programs. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Uh, thank you for mentioning that. Well, great. Thank you both so much for joining us today. And for those listening, thank you for taking the time to tune in.